Our text for this morning is 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, which says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So good morning. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Parkway Church. I hope that you're well. I look forward to the opportunity for us to gather again in the near future. In the meantime, our text for today, as we just read, will be from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. So as you gather your family and gather your things and get your Bible and turn there, I want to tell you a little story. So this past week, I was doing my part to help everybody by working from home, and I was actually trying to prepare, prepare this particular sermon when suddenly the doorbell rang, which was kind of awkward for two reasons. First, because I have young kids, and it was pretty close to nap time, so that's no fun. The second was because you may not know this, but we're in the middle of kind of a quarantine, so no one has unexpectedly rung my doorbell uh, in the past couple of weeks. And so I, I kind of felt like a survivor in a post-apocalyptic movie, suddenly realizing I'm not the only one to have uh, survived, or that scene in The Lost where the survivors finally discover the others. So the doorbell rings, and suddenly I remember that there's actually others out there. So I walk to the door, and I look out the window, and I notice a woman that's standing there. Now, uh, this particular woman wasn't anyone that I knew. It wasn't an acquaintance. It wasn't a friend. It wasn't any of my neighbors. It was a a complete stranger. Now, not to brag or anything, but we have a uh, storm door at the front of our house. My wife hates it, but I love it for times really such as, uh, as this. So I open the front door, but I leave the storm door between myself and this stranger I don't know if a storm door will stop the spread of COVID, but I figure it's better than, uh, than nothing. And when I open the door, this lady instantly points to her phone and starts talking about how she needs help with some sort of uh, order of some sort. So I think, well, maybe this is the Instacart driver who had just dropped off an order. But then the more I think about it, uh, I began to realize, you know, we actually received that order and those groceries about 15 minutes ago. We already have the groceries. And besides, uh, Instacart drivers aren't, are, are supposed to just leave the stuff and then walk away. They're not supposed to be interacting with customers. And they're supposed to be wearing uh, masks and gloves. And here she was ringing my doorbell and asking me to open the door. And uh, she's not wearing mask or gloves. So I'm a little bit suspicious, but then this stranger does something even stranger. She uh, actually asked me to open the door to help her. So I I ask, well, help you with, uh, with what? So she points to her phone again, but again makes it clear that she needs me to open the door in order to facilitate this help so that she can fully show me what she Needs. So now I'm a little bit conflicted in this moment. I'm typically a proponent of giving people the benefit of, uh, of the doubt, but I'm trying to think through all of the potential scenarios here. Worst case scenario, she's not actually an Instacart employee at all. She saw us get our delivery and she's just planning to rob us. 
Or I guess an even worse, worst case scenario is she's a serial killer, but there's very little evidence to support that. But even in the best case scenario that I can think of in this particular moment, she's violating not only all of her alleged employer's policy, but also all of the general guidelines that have been established for social distancing. Besides all of this, I literally know nothing about how to help with some Instacart-related issue because Casey actually does all of that for our family. Now, I'm generally not the barricade yourself in your house and ignore people at your door asking for help. I'm generally not that kind of guy. That's more Zach. But this is a global pandemic, and this seems super fishy, and, uh, and she, she wouldn't even tell me what she needed. So I, I eventually just told her, I'm really sorry. I can't help you. You'll have to call your company. And then I shut the door. At which time she starts screaming and she grabs the door. No, she didn't actually do any of that. She actually just gets in her car and she drives away. Even so, this whole thing was a bit bizarre for me. To this day, I have no idea if she was an actual Instacart employee. And if so, why she came back 15 minutes after delivering our groceries or why she rang the doorbell or why she wanted me to open the door, I didn't open the door and I never actually found out. Now, maybe you would have done differently than me. That's okay. My point isn't to justify myself. What is my point? I kind of don't know, right? It's just a weird thing to happen to me this week. And since I don't get to interact with humans all that often, uh, often these days, I thought I would just share it with you. But if you really think about it, uh, I think it's actually kind of a relevant story to our text because in it, we see that John actually does something that this woman did not. He actually tells us the reason why He's writing. He doesn't leave us to ponder, to, to, to wonder, or to, uh, to assume. He makes his intentions, he makes his purposes explicitly clear. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in and see what this purpose entails. Father, I'm grateful this morning that we have an opportunity uh, to dive into your word together as we continue to march on through First John and get closer to the end of the book, I pray that you would help us, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we would behold the glory of your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. So we pray for your help and we ask these things by your spirit and son. Let's look at First John 5. 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So our passage today is a bridge. It's a transition from the main body of the letter of 1 John to its conclusion. And I want to walk through the text uh, today by pointing out the who, the what, and the why of the passage We'll begin with the what. What is the what? Well, we see that in the phrase, these things. These things, which refers not only to the immediate context of what John has written, but indeed to the entire book of 1 John. Everything that's written here in this particular epistle is written for a particular people and for a particular purpose. That's the who and the why. So let's start with the who. To whom is this written? 
John says that these things are written to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Throughout the book that we've seen this phrase used, we've seen that those who believe in the name of the Son of God are those who have been born of God, those who are regenerate. The, in other words, those who are actual Christians who are evidenced by their faith and their love. But you might ask the question, why is it that John writes, believe in the name of the Son of God? Why doesn't he just write, believe in the Son of God? Why does he mention the name? Well, I think there's a few potential reasons that he does so. First off, because this is shared language with the, uh, with the gospel of John. We've noted many times before that there is this shared relationship. There's this correspondence between the language of the gospel and the language of the epistle. So look in John chapter 1, verse 12, the gospel of John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So John uses this similar language of not only believing in the Son, but believing in the name of the Son to overlap with and allude to his gospel. Additionally, I think another reason why he might use this phrase, perhaps because uh, his opponents would have said, I believe in the Son of God but they wouldn't have confessed that Jesus is that son of God. You see, there's a big difference uh, between simply saying that you believe in a son of God and professing that Jesus is that son of God. John's opponents would have probably adamantly said that they believed in God. Uh, They would have just simply said, hashtag not my God when it comes to Jesus. They believed in God Maybe they even believed in the idea of Messiah. Maybe they believed in the idea of a son of God, but they certainly would not have confessed that Jesus is that messianic son. So the name is this further clarification of the identity of the son. It's not just any son in general, but the son in particular that is inhabited, uh, uh, that's incarnate in history as Jesus of Nazareth. That's another reason, but I think the primary point is simply that believing in a name means the same thing as believing in the one who bears that name. We see that throughout uh, scripture. So that's the who. This was written to all who believe in the Son of God by believing in the name of the Son of God, who is Jesus the Christ, the second person of the Trinity made incarnate for us and for our salvation. That's the who. What about the why? Why does John write? And I love that, that, that John explicitly mentions his purpose for writing right here. One of my pet peeves, you may not know this about me, but one of my pet peeves is when someone I don't know calls and they leave me some sort of a voicemail that just says, this is so-and-so, please call me back. But that's all they say. So I have no idea if that call is a spam Uh, if that's a wrong number, if that's a friend of a friend who needs some sort of pastoral help. So I don't really know if I should call them back or not because I don't wanna call back the spammer or the wrong number. By the way, I have friends that do the same. They, They will text me something like the phrase, call me, but not give any clue why they want to be called. I don't know if it's an emergency. I don't know if it can wait an hour. I don't know if it can wait four hours. Who knows? I wanna text back why but that seems kind of rude. But thankfully, John tells us exactly why he's writing. 
We're not left to wonder. We're not left to ponder. We're not left to speculate. He writes so that, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. This again bears a striking similarity to the gospel of John. Toward the conclusion of the book, he writes this, John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now I want you to notice all the similarities here between John 20 and 1 John 5. Both of these texts are at the conclusion of their respective books. Both of these have a, re- a reference to the, a phrase like what is written or I have written. Both have a, pur- a purpose statement, the, the phrase so that, Both of them make mention of the Son of God and his name and eternal life and the importance of believing. Now, we don't know the order in which the gospel of John and the first epistle of John were written. It's certainly possible that 1 John was written actually after the gospel of John, but regardless of the actual chronological order in which they were written, there seems to be this definite logical order that we are to follow. That the gospel is written in order that we might believe. Uh, The gospel is the story of Jesus. So we read the gospel in order that we might believe upon Jesus. And then having believed the message of the gospel, the epistle is written that we might know, that we might have confidence, that we might have assurance. Especially in light of the historical context in which John is writing A context with false teachers that are teaching a false gospel by neglecting the true Jesus. In other words, John writes this letter, at least in part, to help distinguish orthodoxy from heterodoxy, truth from error or falsehood or heresy. So throughout 1 John, we've seen this come up a number of times. The book of 1 John is very cyclical. So we've seen this pattern over and over. We've noted these various litmus tests that uh, John gives to help us do just that. Not only to distinguish orthodoxy from heresy, but also to encourage our hearts that we are of the truth. That we are not heretics like John's theological opponents. So we've seen that John provides a a theological test, a moral test, and a relational test Uh, regarding theology. In other words, do you believe certain foundational truths about God and about the gospel? Uh, Regarding the moral test, do you have this growing hatred of sin? Do you have this growing love for holiness? Regarding the relational test, do you have a growing love for others that's evidenced in your desire to sacrifice in order to meet their greatest need? If so, you should have confidence that you're born of God. That's why John writes this letter. John writes this letter in order to help us to know whether we have truly been born of God as evidenced in these three ways, faith, love, and morality. And if you're born of God, then you have eternal life. John writes that we might know that we have eternal life. So I think that there's at least three things that we should reflect upon as implications of this. The first thing is I think that we should really consider how unique this idea of assurance, this idea of confidence, this idea of knowing that we have eternal life toward us really is. 
That can't come in other world religions. That can't come in Islam. You can't ever know if you've done enough good works to please Allah. That can't come in Mormonism or with the other cults. Even in Roman Catholicism, this type of confidence is impossible. Any certainty of God's love is thought to be presumptuous because you never really know if you'll one day commit a mortal sin and fall from God's grace. Yet John has written this not just so that you might indulge in wishful thinking that God loves you, that wishful thinking that you have eternal life, but that we might know that we do. So that's the first implication that I wanna mention. The second implication related to this is I think that there is a difference between possessing assurance and feeling assurance. There's a difference between possessing assurance and feeling assurance. A number of people who don't feel assurance should actually feel assured. I've heard uh, pastors say before, unless you know that you know that you know that you're loved by God, then you can't be saved. That's absurd. I don't know that I know that I know that I'm not in the matrix right now. Some of us, many of us maybe, struggle with feeling assured, struggle with feeling confident of God's love toward us. We are confident that he's loving, but not so confident that he actually loves us individually. So maybe you read this passage, maybe you read the book of 1 John, and instead of feeling confident, instead of feeling certain, instead of feeling loved, you instead are tempted to doubt or despair because you feel as though you lack assurance. Well, let me give you an analogy that maybe will help a little bit. A while back, I had a, a car, and that car had a broken fuel gauge. And so when the tank was full, oftentimes the fuel gauge would read empty. And when the tank was empty, it might read full. It was a very helpful gauge. So I learned that I couldn't trust that gauge, and instead I had to trust something else. I had to trust that I remembered when I had filled up the tank and how many miles I had driven since then. Similarly, I don't think your heart is a very effective gauge for assurance. The fact that you may not feel assured doesn't mean that you shouldn't have assurance. As I had to learn to stop looking at and trusting in my gauge, so you need to learn to stop looking at and trusting in your feelings. Stop looking at your feelings and look to Christ instead. Confidence will come not by looking at yourself more and more, nor, uh, not by this paralyzing, excessive, introspective spirit, but instead by looking at Christ. The third implication that I want to consider is though this is really good news, always, I think it's especially relevant right now, this message of knowledge of eternal life. Because the reality is, if this is true, if you have eternal life, what can disturb that? What can destroy that? What can conquer that? COVID-19 can't touch that. Unemployment can't touch that. Nor can bankruptcy, nor loneliness, nor depression, nor death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. John has written this 
to those who believe that we might know that we have eternal life. So will we rest in this promise? Will we rest in this provision this morning and allow this truth to confront and to conquer, to engage the subtle whispers or even the deafening screams of fear and doubt and anxiety? Let's keep going. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Given that we know that we have eternal life and that we're loved by God, we should have confidence. Well, confidence in what in particular? Confidence that God hears us when we ask anything according to his will. Now, we need to do a bit of theology here around the idea of God hearing his people because you might be tempted to think, doesn't God hear everything? What kind of promise is this? Just the idea that God would promise to hear our prayers? God knows everything. God hears everything. Isn't that true? Well, in some sense, it certainly is. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. So he knows all things. He hears all things. He even hears the things that produce no sound to be heard. But in another sense, he doesn't hear some things, in particular, some prayers. That might sound super strange to you. Maybe you've never heard that before. Maybe that's a very foreign idea. So let me give you just a few of the passages in Scripture that actually support that claim. This is not just something we're making up. We're getting this directly from Scripture. Proverbs 15, 29. Notice this contrast. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he what? He hears the prayer of the righteous. The implication being he doesn't hear the prayer of the wicked. Or Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Or Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have Listened, and there's others that we could have mentioned. Am I saying that God doesn't hear the prayers of unbelievers? Yes, I am saying that because the Bible says that. While God is omniscient, while God is sovereign, while God hears all things in some sense, there is another sense in which God, God doesn't hear certain prayers. He doesn't hear the prayers of those who would simply use him. Those who would use him in order to perpetuate their own kingdom in discord with his. He doesn't hear the prayers of the unrighteous or the ungodly. Now, how can God both hear and not hear prayers? That might sound somewhat complicated, but it's actually not all that strange. We can actually relate to that in a limited sense. Anytime you're on the phone and you tune out some background noise, you kind of hear it, but at the same time, you ignore it. Or when you're having an argument with your spouse and you hear every single word that they say, but you're not really listening to their main point. You're hearing, but you're not really hearing. Not that any of us have ever done that, but we all know people who do that kind of thing. But even we can hear without really listening. And I think that's kind of like what God is doing. He hears all things, but he doesn't promise to give heed to the prayers of those who disbelieve and disobey. And John's point here in 1 John isn't that God will just hear you in some ambiguous, general, universal sense, but rather that he will listen in this distinct, personal, relational sense. That he will incline his ear to hear you, because, and because he hears, that he will actually 
Now, what does it mean to ask according to his will? We're gonna talk about that shortly. For now, I just want to concentrate on this one word, confidence, that you see here in 1 John 5, 14. John writes, this is the confidence that we have toward him. And this idea of confidence permeates the New Testament. I wanna give just two passages that I think are really helpful to help kind of draw out the implications of uh, this notion of confidence. Both of them are from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter four, 15 through 16 says this, speaking of Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been, tempt, uh, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The next one's in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This word that's translated in both 1 John and Hebrews as confidence is actually most translated throughout the New Testament as boldness. And those ideas actually overlap because we have confidence of God's love, of God's acceptance. We have boldness in drawing near. That's the point that Hebrews is making. So as an analogy, I want you to think about the idea of just showing up uninvited at the White House or Buckingham Palace or Carl's house or some other palatial estate and asking to speak with the president or the queen or whomever. I don't think any of us in our right minds would think to do so. Even if I were invited to one of these places, I would be somewhat nervous because of the gravity and significance of the occasion. So why don't I feel that same sense of angst when I visit my parents or close friends, for example? I don't even knock when I go to my parents. I just walk in. I don't ask for a drink of water. I don't ask to use the bathroom. I help myself. Why? Because I know that they love me. I know that they welcome me into their presence. My confidence in their love leads me to boldly draw near in a way that I otherwise would not. And that's what John is saying. Yes, God is a sovereign king. So there's gravity that is humbling, but he's also a good father. And so his love is likewise humbling and it beckons us to draw near to him. And in the context of 1 John, notice the effect of our confidence. It's that we might ask, that we might pray. Confidence of God's love for us leads us to boldness in prayer. This reminds me of the story of, uh, of Esther. If you're not familiar with that, Esther is a young Jewish woman, but she's married to the king of the Persians. And there's a law in, in Persia that says that no one may enter the presence of the king, not even his royal family. But Esther has to approach him. There is this danger that's confronting her and her people. And there is the law in Persia that says, if you approach the king without being invited, that you will suffer death. There, there is a death penalty that's been uh, 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 proclaimed over you unless the king extends his scepter toward you. 
And so Esther is so overwhelmed by the thought of, of, of the, what this might entail if she approaches him that she has her friends and she has her family fast and pray. But eventually she makes the decision that she's gonna go forward. Now I can imagine that walk through the palace is terribly humbling. That every step is filled with fear and trembling and trepidation and uncertainty. But imagine how different that story would have been if the king had already invited her or if she somehow already knew that he would extend the scepter and welcome her. That walk suddenly doesn't seem so long or stressful. And listen to me, Christian, this is what you have in Christ. In Christ, the door to the throne room of God has been perpetually opened. The scepter permanently extended. The king has eternally invited us into his presence. In Christ, we have confidence of the steadfast love and favor of the almighty triune God. So we approach not only our king, but also our father. And this confidence should naturally lead us to boldness in prayer. So let me ask you this. Do you have such boldness in prayer? Or do you instead believe that God merely tolerates you? That he doesn't really like you? That he's capricious? That he's unstable? Do you struggle to pray? If so, let me tell you this, welcome to the club. But also recognize that that wrestle, that that struggle is evidence that somewhere deep down in your heart, you have failed to grasp the truth of this passage. By the way, this is another reason why we say often here that theology is not irrelevant, that theology is profoundly practical, and you can't separate the head from the heart. Because what you believe about yourself and what you believe about God profoundly affects how you relate to God, including how you pray. For example, if you believe that God hates you or is displeased by you, if you believe that he's too busy or that he's confused or that he isn't really sovereign so he can't really do anything, all of these beliefs profoundly affect our desire to pray. On the other hand, if you believe that you somehow merit God's love or his favor, that will also affect your prayer. And rather than humbly and gratefully petitioning God, you will presume upon his love. So theology is no enemy of prayer. In fact, it is the very fuel that gives us the confidence to ask boldly, knowing that God is all powerful and all loving and all good and all holy and that our access to him, though permanent, is always and only by grace because of Christ. So the confidence the sons of God have is that he hears us. And because he hears us, he helps us. Let's look at what that does and doesn't mean in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Bear in mind the flow of the text uh, thus far. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, then you have a relationship with God. And on the basis of that relationship with God, you should have a confidence in his love and that confidence leads you to boldness in prayer. So is our expectation merely that God hears us? No, it's that he helps us. Not only do we know that he hears us, but also that we have the request that we have asked of him, as he says here. Now that's a complicated turn of phrase, 
But I think what John means is something very similar to what we read in the gospel. John 16, 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. John 14, 13 through 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the promise isn't merely that God will hear our requests, but he will give and do what we ask. That's what I think 1 John 5.15 means as well. Not only that he hears us, but that we should have great confidence that God will faithfully answer our prayers, that we will have what we have asked. Now, this is rife with misunderstanding and misapplication, so I wanna clarify it a bit. This absolutely does not mean that the name of Jesus is a magic word like abracadabra or bibbidi-bobbidi-boo or something like that, Uh, that we just suddenly say Jesus' name and all of a sudden, all of our wishes come true. That's not what this is saying. Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe. He is not your personal genie in a bottle. A couple of members have uh, asked me this past week uh, about a video that's been circulating on the uh, internet of a uh, well-known pastor in case you turn away from your screen for a second, I did pastor in air quotes. A, uh, a, a pastor who commanded and spit at, uh, at COVID in the name of Jesus. So is that what this passage is implying? That we can na- use the name of Jesus like a magic wand? Of course not. Let me give you just five huge problems with this infuriating little two-minute clip that I saw on the internet. I had like 10 problems, but we don't have time, so we're down to five. First problem, he's spitting. I think that's strange. In the midst of a global pandemic that's spread by saliva, and there's other people in the room, I think it's weird that he is spitting. That seems strange and unhygienic. Second, this quote-unquote pastor is a heretic. Remember how God doesn't hear the prayers of those who blaspheme his name? Well, that's what this guy does. There's a humorous story in the book of Acts about some Jewish exorcists, the, they're, they're the seven sons of Sceva, and, uh, and, and they hear about what Paul and the other apostles are doing, and so they decide they're going to use the name of Jesus to cast out demons. What happens? Well, the demons beat them up and send them away naked. That's how you know if you've lost a fight, right? No matter how many punches you get in, if you're the one who runs away with no clothes on, you've lost that fight, so that's the first problem. This man is using the name, uh, name of Jesus like these Jewish exorcists. He's using the name of Jesus in a way that blasphemes the actual son of God. The third problem is it doesn't work. He, he, this video was recorded like two weeks ago and people are still getting sick. People are still dying. When Jesus commands a storm, notice what happens. It instantly stills. When Kenneth Copeland commands COVID, things actually get worse. If you claim prophetic authority and yet that prophecy doesn't come true, that makes you a false prophet. That's not good. Fourth problem, it belittles God. It makes a mockery of prayer. Again, Jesus isn't your personal genie. Jesus isn't a bellhop like at a, uh, the fancy hotel that uh, Zach always talks about staying in. You don't ring a little bell and ask Jesus to bring you some sparkling water. You can't command the wind and fire to do your bidding. And the last problem is it assumes that God doesn't ordain suffering. 
and that we even know what to ask for. And that's a big assumption that I think, uh, as we'll prove here in a second, we can't make. So that kind of rubbish that you might see on YouTube or on TV uh, is nothing like what John is talking about here in this passage or any other passage. The point of the text isn't that you'll get absolutely anything that you'll ask for. In fact, there's a number of reasons that uh, you may not get what you want as a Christian. Let me give you just four of them. The, The first one, you haven't asked. Second, you haven't asked often enough. Third, you ask for the wrong reason. Fourth, you ask for the wrong thing. Let's briefly consider each of those. The first one is you haven't asked. James says we have not because we ask not. Maybe you lack some good thing, some good gift, because you lack confidence in asking for it. God will sometimes withhold some good from his children until we ask for it. Why? So that we will attach that good to the giver of the good. So that we will recognize that he is the giver of that good thing. So he makes us ask for it. Second, maybe you haven't asked enough. In other words, the Bible commends constancy and persistence in prayer. We see this in the the parable of the persistent widow, for example, who continues to ask and ask and ask until finally she's answered. So perhaps you lack something because you simply haven't persisted long enough in asking for it. Once again, perhaps God has withheld something for your good in order to train you in endurance and patience and persistence and perseverance in prayer. Third, maybe you don't have something because you're asking for the wrong reasons. Earlier I mentioned the book of James which says you have not because you ask not. Immediately thereafter, it says when you do ask, you ask for sinful or selfish reasons. We ask for a rope not to help pull someone out of danger, but rather to choke out our enemy. We ask for money not to feed our family, but to feed a drug habit. We ask for a car not to drive to work, but to run over an enemy or something like that. Or perhaps the request itself isn't motivated by sin, but there's another sin that you're cherishing or refusing to let go of. The Bible says that if you are holding on, if you're clinging to some sort of secret sin, something you refuse to confess or repent of, that your prayers may be hindered. Why? Again, for your good, so that you might walk in the light and liberty and joy of confession and repentance. And lastly, and this is a really big one, you simply ask for the wrong thing. In other words, we are limited, we are finite, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. God demands and God desires that we ask with boldness, but not with presumption, as if we are all wise or all knowing. Look at Romans 8, Romans 8, 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit helps our prayers. And what is the promise that's attached to this passage? That God will ultimately do what is good. So what is good? Well, in the context of Romans 8, it's whatever conforms you to the image of Christ. Had you asked Paul 
what he wanted regarding the thorn in his flesh, he would have said he wanted it to be removed. He wanted to be free. In fact, he prayed multiple times for God to remove that thorn. But God knows better than Paul what's good for Paul. God knows that a little pain is better than a lot of pride. And so the thorn remains. Likewise with Joseph. He wants to get out of that pit. He wants to get out of the prison. But it's better that he be enslaved for a time so that all of Israel will ultimately be saved. Or Peter, as he's trying to cut off the soldier's ear in the garden because he can't fully comprehend that Christ's death would be the greatest good to ever be done. At the end of the day, our prayers have to rest on a foundation of humility as we confess that we don't know what is best. We don't know what we need. We're finite. We're limited. We're frail. We don't even know the depths of our own heart, much less the mind and purposes of God. When this passage talks about confidence and prayer, notice the content of our confidence. I can be and should be, you can be and should be confident that God hears you, that God loves you, but we should not at all be confident that we know what is actually best, that we know what actually most glorifies God in various contexts. I know what I want. I know God's moral revealed will, but I don't know all of the intricacies of what God is doing according to his sovereign will of decree. But notice the common theme that undergirds all of these, every single one of these situations in which you don't have something that you want because this is huge. Whether you don't have because you don't ask or you don't ask often enough or you haven't asked with the right motivations or you haven't asked for the right thing, regardless uh, of all of those, notice the underlying purpose. God withholds something from you not because he's mean, not because he's unloving, not because he's capricious or cruel or wicked, but because he is good and he cares for you and he loves you. He knows what is best for you and so he gives what is best for you and he withholds what is not good for you. In light of that, paraphrasing a pastor named Tim Keller, I think we should confidently say that if you knew everything that God knows, you would ask for only and exactly what he gives. Let me say that again because I, I, I think most of us when it comes to prayer don't really believe this. And I think this is absolutely theologically true. Again, if you were all knowing and all wise and all good as God is, then when you were asking for things, you would ask for God to give you exactly what he has. And you would ask for him to withhold what he withholds, always. Therefore, I think the implication, the application of the text this morning is that we would be a people who might ask, that we would be a people who would ask boldly, that we would pray big things, that we would pray with confidence and expectation. Not that you will always get what you want, but that you will get whatever is ultimately for your eternal joy and good. And so will all of the children of God who believe in the name of the Son of God. I think that we should ask in confidence, not that we know what is best, but that God does. And that he will always and only do what is best, even if it isn't what we actually ask for. This is our hope. 
in the midst of a really trying season with a thousand temptations for all of us to fear and anxiety and doubt and despair. As we bring our text to an end, I wanna go back to that opening illustration. But instead of some strange woman who may or may not have worked for uh, Instacart, let's imagine instead that standing there at the door is my own daughter or my own son standing on the other side of that fancy storm door that we have. And they're pleading with me, Daddy, will you help me? I can assure you that story would have ended much differently than this particular story did. It would not have ended with me saying, I'm sorry, I can't help you, and me shutting the door. And yet sometimes I think deep down, some of us think God does exactly that toward his children. So I want to end by reading from a passage we've read many times before here at Parkway, but is, I think, one of the most important texts in all of Scripture for cultivating, for correcting uh, our hearts, correcting this natural resistance that we have to the idea that God loves us and to imploring us toward confidence and prayer. So let's read Matthew 7, 7 through 11, which tells us, the children of God, to ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and to the one who seeks they'll find and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now listen to this analogy because this it helps tremendously. This means everything. Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asked for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is the confidence we have in Christ. So in light of that, let's pray. Father, I I thank you for this passage. I confess that you're good And you do good and you desire for your people to approach your throne of grace with confidence, to draw near with full assurance and expectation that we have eternal life and that we are your children and therefore you desire to hear from us. And so I pray that we would be a people of prayer. I pray that you would uh, give us the faith to believe these things with confidence and that confidence would lead us to boldly ask of you with full assurance. I pray these things because you are a good father and you give good gifts and you've given us access to you through your son, Jesus, and by your spirit. And so we pray in Christ's name, amen.